Welcome to the first episode in a three-part Law and Borders series in which, together with lawyers from Morton Fraser, we'll be taking an in-depth look at Scotland. In future episodes, we'll delve into the planning system north of the border and take a look at investor sentiment and the impacts of, on future development. But of course, we had to start with the impact of COVID-19 and what a year of lockdowns and other restrictions has meant for Scottish real estate. I'm joined by Jonathan Seddon, a partner in the construction team, and Alan Stewart, a partner in commercial real estate, both, of course, at Morton Fraser. Great to speak to you both. Hello. Hello, Jess. Hi. So I imagine that much of the experience in Scotland has mirrored that of England over the last 14 months or so. But of course, there have been divergences in approach from our respective governments during that period. So if we take a bit of a sector by sector approach um, and maybe starting with Jonathan, can you give us a bit of a timeline on what the impact has been on construction north of the border? Yeah, sure. So um, the, the as you say, a year like no other, Jess, really, uh, we... We kicked off, I suppose, in February time or even March time with mention of the coronavirus and it hadn't quite hit our shores yet, but we had a heads up that something was potentially coming down the line. Uh, early March 2020, we were looking at contracts and, and wondering what the implications might be if construction sites were shut down because of the coronavirus. And that would lead you to the conclusion that it was probably a force majeure type of event um, because of a pandemic or an epidemic, mm. but we didn't really know wh wh where wh where this was going until probably end of March. We all remember Boris Johnson's announcement on the 23rd of March that people must stay at home, uh, and he effectively ordered the first lockdown across the UK at that point. Prior to that, most offices, I think, had had, had emptied. A lot of us had started working from home at that at that point. And in terms of construction sites, there were slight differences. Uh, the First Minister up here had made it clear towards the end of March that her advice was that building sites should close, whereas in Westminster, the view was, and I think, I think Matt Hancock actually had said that because you can't work on construction sites from home, then you should go to work, but you had to obviously observe social distancing and stay two metres apart. So there was a bit of a divergence in the Scotland-England approach um, and it essentially probably meant that that uh, Scotland closed down a bit a, a bit more early on the sites than, than England did. But essentially, we got to April. Most sites had closed by that point. And rather than developers actually instructing the closure of the sites, which might lead to additional money being incurred, it was really a gradual recognition between both developer and contractor that it was neither safe nor appropriate to continue working on site unless your project was what was classed as essential. Um, so, so, so that was when that was where the the the, the real kind of construction um, closed down took place. Um, and during that that phase, developers and contractors and designers really worked together to try and establish what the projects might look like going forward, how best to to deal with design and construction when when projects got up and running again. And so they were, they probably had a head start towards the summer when, when when sites opened again as to how to take them forward. But Alan, certainly you had a you had a number of clients, particularly on the office side perhaps, that, that had developments ongoing at that point that, that then were were forced to, to to close. I don't know how your yeah, take is how your clients dealt with that. Yeah, interesting. I had a 
quite a, a good chat with a client last week on this. And, and it, it kind of comes back to a lot of what you were kind of saying. It, it, I mean, I think in retrospect, we probably shouldn't underestimate how difficult and complicated it was for developers to get on site and to crack on with some of these construction contracts. Mm. So I, I think the reality is when you're talking about um, particularly constrained sites, potentially enlisted buildings and townhouses in the centre of Edinburgh, then to ask contractors to socially distance while they're doing all of that work is incredibly laborious, incredibly difficult. So I think probably what I would say is I think the construction industry should take great credit for the way they've got through lockdown and as well as they have really, because you know I think as we're saying that the circumstances that they were um, thrown into are absolutely unprecedented. So that all said, I mean, I think what we have seen is um, the office market in Edinburgh actually remaining reasonably robust. And um, certainly from a, a Morton Fraser perspective, we've had a number of clients who've concluded various deals over lockdown. And mm -hmm. while I think the stats are, are pretty negative in terms of quite a constraint in terms of deal volumes and also in terms of floor space, I kind of think that will bounce back quite strongly, particularly as we move into the next quarter. So I think prospects for Edinburgh offices are actually quite quite robust, quite healthy. And um, certainly in terms of what we're hearing from clients and contacts is that there is actually a reasonably robust level of demand out there. And, and you know, that's hugely encouraging given the the last 12 months that we've all had. I agree with that. I think the interesting thing about about um, Edinburgh particularly is there's also a lack of grade A space at the moment. You've got a little bit of space left mm. at Cap Capital Square in a BAM project. You've got Haymarket, like phase one's coming, going to be PC perhaps 2022. Yeah. But of course, Bailey Gifford have got that enormous pre-let on, on that one. Um, not, not, not much else in the way of obvious grade A space, and I think, I think the way that occupiers are going to view the office market going forward is there's going to be a a, a move towards more grade A space. You know, mm. quality workspace can be important. Wellness is also a big thing in in the workplace just now, and 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 to, to attract the best talent, employers are going to have to uh, seek out the best offices. I think. Yeah, I agree with that. I, mean, I think you're bang on in terms of Edinburgh. Clearly, we've got Haymarket coming out the ground at the moment. Clearly, not going to be finished until Q2, Q3, 2022. There isn't really any other kind of significant grade A offices coming out the ground. So that's good news if you're a landlord, of course, because that's driving kind of rental growth. I think anecdotally, we're hearing that rental levels at um, Haymarket are up to £35 per square foot. And clearly need to kind of strip out the incentives to get back to whatever the net effective rent and that is. But um, that's good news for, for other landlords in the peripheral areas as well. So I think you're right. I, I mean, I suppose my kind of take on it is, having kind of spoken to various corporate occupiers, is that everybody's going through a, a, a process at the moment where they're looking at their own individual office requirements. I'm not convinced that that scenario planning and strategic analysis has been fully completed, perhaps not surprisingly, because we're still you know, trying to deal with lockdown and coming towards the end of the process. But I think over the next six, nine, 12 months, lots of businesses will look at their own building footprints and try and figure out 
what sort of office requirements suits their needs best at that particular time. And I, I think you're right, Johnny. I think probably what we will see is a bit of a blended approach. I think some businesses will commit to the big new shiny grady office buildings, but in conjunction with that, I think they'll probably look for some more flexible options to sit alongside it. So you could imagine a scenario where a corporate occupier might be working on a particular project and decide that that particular project team needs to be a housed off-site in a, a co-working environment or in a serviced office to assist with collaboration and communication. So I think probably what's happened is COVID and the consequences of COVID in the sense that we've all really kind of had to adapt to a new normal has triggered this reawakening of probably how we work and the way in which we're going to work in the long term. And I think it's pretty hard to see how that is going to change fundamentally. I think yeah. probably the reality is everything's up for debate and and how occupiers use and, and what sort of space they need will, 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 will be up for discussion, I would have thought. And it's interesting, isn't it, because you go back to this time last year and the general buzz was occupiers will be looking at how to get out of the leases to take to take lesser yeah. space. You know, none of us will need the, the space we've been used to over the years. And I think over the last 12 months, what we've actually realised, as you say, is that it's not as straightforward as that at all. Mm. Um, and whilst on the investment side, there wasn't a great deal of investment activity in the offices uh, market in, in 2020, what we've seen this year, I think, is is much more of an enthusiasm, particularly from overseas money. Mm. To, 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 you know, Can-Am taking quarter mile three, that was last year, um, and, and the property North St Andrews Square as well. And the, um, you see Korean money coming in, there's been South African money coming yeah, in. Yeah, absolutely. And you just sense a bit of, you know, the, the office market is, is I think, pretty robust. There's a couple of, you know, there's a, there's a deal just done in Aberdeen um, uh, last week. And, and you know, um, Glasgow as well. The, 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 the Tritax sale to Glade Capital of Neptune Energy's HQ, that's a, a decent-sized office yeah. deal. Um, there's obviously a chat going on just now that former fund who had a new entrant into the UK are looking at Aurora in Glasgow. So, you know, it's looking pretty resilient, I would say, the market after a, I think, a wobbly 12 months. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. I mean, I, I think the agents would probably tell you that investment activity was pretty badly constrained in 2020 for fairly obvious reasons. And <laughs> that kind of follows on from probably not a great 2019 as well. Um, but I think you're right. I, I mean, you look around the local markets and, you know, I think there's a fairly robust appetite for well-let grade A office developments. Um, certainly, yeah. we know, certainly we know the German funds are back. Um, there's a huge amount of obviously Southeast Asian money looking at the market. And um, the Americans, I think, are probably also now kind of back in play. So um, I don't think there's much doubt that there will be competition for well-let grade A office developments coming to the market and you know anecdotally we know that there are a few out there that are likely to kind of land in the next three to six months and mm -hmm. um, yeah, right. yeah so i i think there are good grounds to be reasonably optimistic about that market um, and i think glasgow's the same actually i think there are some fundamentally very sound office developments coming through and, and you can imagine if you're you're an overseas investor then you know, well-let Grady office building to a good covenant probably looks in historical terms relatively cheap 
probably cheap as well compared to similar assets located in Europe. So um, I think in the long term that bodes well actually for our local investment market. In terms of um, office leasing, obviously some of the mechanisms up there work a little bit differently to how they do down here. How how has that impacted um, sort of landlord and tenant negotiations? And are you sort of seeing the rise of so-called COVID clauses um, mm. up there? Yeah, I, I, I've certainly seen that getting raised by tenants and it's a very difficult um scenario for a landlord to get its head around and hmm. um, you know why should a, a tenant not be entitled to unilaterally end its lease in the event that because of some supervening event or some emergency legislation it can't actually physically occupy its property so i think that's that's a bit of a conundrum for landlords and i think it's one that as precedent develops landlords are really going to have to get their heads around and um, I have personally sort of explored some insurance type options that might be able to plug the gap in terms of delivering a loss of rent type product for a landlord where a tenant can otherwise walk away from the lease in those circumstances. But it's quite expensive and it, there, there, there's absolutely no absolute certainty that product's going to be available for a, a prolonged period of time given how prevalent COVID seems to be. So. It's a very difficult area of law, Jess, and I, I think we're probably only now really at the embryonic stages of kind of mm. seeing how that's going to pan out. And Alan, have you, have you seen landlords agreeing to adjust the frequency of rent rent payments in the office market? Um, so, so to give 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 tenants a bit of a stay in terms of when the rent's actually paid. Yeah, I mean, I think. What I saw during COVID was landlords being incredibly sensible and yeah. pragmatic. And clearly a landlord wants its tenant to succeed in the long run. And yeah, no, we, we, we saw all sorts of very um, complex to simple sorts of rent-free type arrangements, rental abatements, rental holidays, yeah. deferments completely, um, but usually in exchange for something. So. A landlord looking to seek some um, extended term, possibly, or some accelerated rent review in exchange for giving the tenant some immediate kind of headroom in terms of their, their rental commitment. So, yeah, no, I think that was one of the very encouraging aspects of the of the COVID scenario that, still in the office environment, mm. landlords were able to be flexible. You didn't that, that that didn't really come up in the industrial sector where I think rental returns were incredibly robust and um, landlords were, were, were pretty much kind of assured to be paid during that period and well I think probably the less said about re uh, retail the better because I think as we all know that's a sector that's undergoing some pretty significant structural ch changes. Yeah it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting isn't it because it was I think as you say it, it's structural changes you know what's happening with retail is not just a kind of phase Mm. It was seen through 2020. It's kind of hardwired into where the sector was going anyway, um, yeah. in, in some ways. And you have you know, you've, you've got a number of tenants that are also looking to, to 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 strengthen their their physical presence to to boost their online mm. brand in, in a way. But others altogether that are, that are just that were already looking at you know moving into the retail warehousing and and, and home delivery space rather than having a shop front um and really this whole thing's just kind of bounced them into that so 
again, as you said, the the the, the, the warehousing area has had a, has had a boost at the expense, perhaps, of the city centre and the high street. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I don't think there's any there's any question that secondary retail is going through some pretty seismic structural shifts, which, you know, let's be honest, have been accelerated by COVID. Um, mm -hmm. the, the issues were pretty clear, both in retail, but also probably food and drink pre-COVID. I, th I think the question for the real estate industry is, what next? How, how do we bounce back from COVID and, and what does that bounce back look like? Mm. Um, what's the retail recovery going to be if there is one? And, and I think probably the answer to that is it's largely going to be driven by what consumers do next. Are we likely to see consumers getting back out there accessing physical retail or is it the case that habits and and ways of shopping now are so entrenched that it's actually physically hard to get back to that. I, I think the truth is it's probably too early to tell. Mm -hmm. um, the rise of e-commerce has obviously been, well, you know, fairly significant to say the least in the last 10 years. I saw some stats the other day that suggested in the period from 2011 to 2020, the value of e-commerce trade grew from 23 billion to 84 billion across the UK. And that wow. seems that seems like a trend that is kind of unstoppable in some respects. Um, and and actually, I suppose as well, when you look at retail, you know, we we talk about town centre retail struggling, and I think that's probably inevitably the case, given that we've all been sitting in our houses for the last twelve months. But it's it's a bit more nuanced than that as well, isn't it? Because we know that retail warehousing. Probably held up pretty well. The occupational market, I think, as you touched on there, John, has been pretty robust. And investment activity in that market as well, out of town retail parks, particularly mm. where you know you've got assets that maybe sit close to a, a fairly sizable um, population, they will probably retain some quite good residual residential value. So you can see already in the investment market some funds and um, other investors ploughing in, thinking that this is maybe the time to buy at the bottom of the market, probably fortified by the knowledge that, you know, there's some strong underlying residential value attached to some of these parks. So I think retail warehousing is probably a bit more of a robust market than city centre secondary shopping, where I think some of the structural changes, I think, are probably with us for the long run. Yeah, on the retail front, um, we down here in England, we've had a number of uh, cases, uh, reach courts and, and, and judgments given um, on CVAs and, and corporate restructurings that have seen rent uh, reduced and, and arrears written off. And uh, we've also had some successful claims by landlords on on rent claims. And, and obviously, we, we still, um, you know, the, the moratorium is in place on a number of um, measures that are usually available to landlords for dealing with rent arrears. But how how do things differ up there in in um, the approach taken to issues like that? And and what what is your sense of of that relationship between landlords and, and tenants in in the retail and hospitality sectors? I think that the approach has very much been the same. There's been moratoriums and restrictions on what landlords can do to um, seek recovery of unpaid rent. Um, and, and I think the reality is that we'll probably see the market in Scotland develop in a very similar way to 
the way it develops down south. There isn't, you know, there aren't really any sort of fundamental structural differences in terms mm. of how insolvency law is applied across both jurisdictions. So um, I think we can probably say, in a, in a practical sense, um, the the damage I think is yet to come really in, in terms of the retail sector because I think we've probably got a lot of businesses at the moment who are being protected through the moratorium, through short-term government funding. And um, I think the issue will be what happens when all of that is removed. You know, do we do we have zombie companies at the moment who are skipping along quite happily? But what what happens when all of that support is ended? I think that's probably when we'll kind of hit a critical point in terms of the the, the retail offering in, in our city centres. And I imagine that like the, the hotel and the hospitality sector up in Scotland must have been pretty profoundly hit because, you know, you would conventionally benefit from quite a, an influx of tourists um, uh, on any usual year, not only in Edinburgh and Glasgow, but, you know, in uh, areas like Loch Ness and Loch Lomond and the Highlands. Um, I imagine that sector must have been pretty badly hit. Yeah, yeah. I think it- it has, yeah, and, and I suppose the, 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 it was there was a bit of an, a bit of an easing last summer. You know, we we, we didn't mm. quite get back into the offices like like you did down south, but we did get back into the the leisure and and, and hospitality side of things for a short period. Um, mm. And then even towards the back end of last year, into t- t- late twenty twenty, if I remember rightly. Edinburgh was in a slightly more relaxed tier as compared to Glasgow, and there was a suggestion that Edinburgh might remain open for business, but that mm. probably quite sensibly really was knocked on the head by by the, the government. I think that really the concern there was that that would be one surefire way to put Edinburgh back up to a dangerous tier would be to invite <laughs> everyone in, you know? So, um, but yeah, I, I, and of course, Edinburgh would normally have the the festival and the fringe that goes mm. around that. And Al and I work in the, in the just off the meadows, our office is up there when it's open, and the activity around the festival mm. and the fringe in that neck of the woods is just incredible every year. So, yeah, I, I mean, the, the only, the, the, the measures of support that are in place to try and keep these organisations going, I suppose the hope is that when they're lifted, at the same time, for the likes of us, the consumer that's been stuck in our house for so long, there's a pent up demand to get back out and, you know, uh, go, go, go to a hotel, go to a restaurant, go to a pub. We'll, we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. But certainly 2020, particularly, I think, the start of this year was a was a pretty hard time. Yeah, I think that's right, John. I mean, it'd be you know, fairly kind of obvious to kind of say retail has probably been the hardest hit sector by COVID. And, and within that, Jess, I would probably lump in you know, hospitality and, mm. and, and food and drink itself. But, you know, interestingly, I, I kind of see one or two clients looking to invest in hotels and using the lockdown as a as a good period to kind of refurbish, to kind of create different brands, to put themselves back into a position where they can kind of, you know, bounce back, as Johnny's kind of suggested, from COVID with, with the best kind of um, possible outcome. So, yeah, I think while it's been difficult, obviously, I think probably what hotel owners in particular are doing is sort of recognising that, you know, this is an opportunity maybe to kind of refurbish some of their, their offering and um, spruce up their brands a little bit. Mm. 
And uh, always a, a hotbed topic down here is the um, residential and, and the need for, for housing. How, how important is that up in Scotland? Is, that, is, it, is it seen in the same way? And, and how has that been affected over the last um, 14 months? So it's been it's been probably the most resilient uh, sector area, I would say, Jess, you know, mm -hmm. which is staggering in itself when you think this time last year, the the, the sites were closed mm -hmm. um, for residential development but on the house building side, the demand, you've got the political will, you've got the, the demand from, from, from the from the buyers. Um, mm -hmm. And so amongst the house builders, both PLCs and the private house builders, the, the demand for good sites is is, is really there. Um, you know, well-connected sites in in, in in good city centres. So that's on the on on the strategic land and, and plot sales side of things. We've also seen an uptake in the BTR side. So PRS mm -hmm. down south, you call it private sector. Um, build to rent is, has has and BTR has become the acronym in Scotland. Uh, why we didn't? I think we've been, I think we've been embracing that now as well. <laughs> Have you? Good on you. <laughs> we, we, we knew you would eventually. Um, and that market, you know, I mean, we saw that four or five years ago, PRF is a big thing in in, in London and in Manchester, um, but it, it didn't quite, I think the investors didn't quite get their heads around it in Scotland because the scale wasn't there. I think you probably need 300, maybe 250, 300 plus units to make them work. So the scale wasn't really there in Scotland, but just over recent years, I think BTR has has, has really taken off. Um, and within that, we'll come back to the general BTR a sec, but within that, the, the student accommodation side of things um, has been really resilient. And, and I guess the answer there is, firstly, it's not it's not a, an, an alternative investment class anymore, you know, student. It's very much mainstream. It's We, we, we got involved in that, or I got involved in that, more than Fraser, about 10 years or so ago when it was regarded as a, a young asset class. But now mm. it's very established. The investors get it. They understand how it works. Um, and I must admit, I thought this time last year that sector would struggle because because of the lockdown and also the ability to 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 to, to view lectures from home. Yeah. But I think what we saw is young people must have been significantly affected by issues like loneliness and isolation. Um, and when it came to September last year, when the term was when the terms were starting, you basically got a choice as a student where you can stay at home if your parents will have you in your bedroom and, and watch your lectures online, or you can go to your student digs and okay, you're still watching lectures, on, lectures online, but you're you're with other people of the same of yeah. the same age, and you're actually able to socialise. Um, and I think what, what transpired was that university places, when it came to September last year, were really only down by single figures compared to nineteen. Um, and, uh, it's and amazing that, that, isn't it? When you think yeah. about that, that actually occupancy levels held up incredibly well in the, 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 the student sector. And yeah, I, mean, I think the reasons for that are kind of, as, as you kind of touched on, Johnny, it, 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 I suppose what might be interesting is how does that play out in the longer term? Because I suppose we all know that in Scotland particularly, I think international students play such an important part of how that occupancy level is driven. So, you know, if you're an overseas student, maybe in your you're, you're sitting somewhere over in Asia, maybe, and you're looking at various markets, you know, you look at the UK, you look at the US, you look at Australia, well, you know, where did you go? Well, you, you can get into Australia and New Zealand, they're both shut. Mm. 
And mm-hmm. the, you know, the real benefit of the UK is clearly we've done superbly well with our vaccination program. So I think I think we've done probably as well as we can do in that sector to re- retain the levels of confidence that really drive the occupancy levels that the investors and the developers need. So, you know, we talk about retail having a kind of tough time, but I, I don't think there's any question that the student accommodation sector has held up remarkably well set against what people expected and also mm. some of the other property sectors that we've kind of touched on. And Absolutely. I, as I say, I think the, the one caution to that is what does happen longer term? You know, how will universities adjust their teaching? Does that necessarily mean that overseas students will come here in as significant numbers as they have in the past? So um, that's maybe something to watch. But certainly in terms of investment um, as a sector, um, the the structural fundamentals of PBSA in Scotland remain remarkably strong with you know resilient, strong income streams for funds and investors to exploit. So uh, it's been yeah. a real success story. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you hit the nail on the head there. You know, I think the vaccination, the success of the vaccination program in the UK has been the icing on the cake. You know, the fundamentals were already looking pretty good in terms of the, the occupancy levels, the fact yeah. that, you know, foreign students want to come and get a, a, a UK university or college on their CV. You know, it's, it's, it's very important from a prestigious point of view. But the, the, the vaccine, you know, if you compare... Um, and I think what students are doing at the moment, apparently, they're, they're covering for this year a number of different options. So they'll maybe you know, cover a place in the UK, they'll cover a place in France and, and, yeah, and Germany. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and they'll wait and see over the summer how it pans out. And for as long as you know, we touch wood have a vaccination program that is going strong and numbers that are relatively mm. low, more of them towards t- towards the end of the summer are going to probably plump for. A safer in inverted commas um, location, you know, as as opposed to obviously, you know, for example, India just now or or, or France, they they would be the two that, that probably need need a turnaround. Mm. UK, UK, Germany, Spain, all, all all probably doing quite well in in, in the context of vaccinations um, and and PBSA demand generally. And there's certainly the product there for them. I don't think there's any doubt that. The, the private companies are developing in that sector are really kind of building best-in-class assets now mm. for, for all these students. It's changed days from the time that we were at university, Johnny, where you kind of, you know, you rented a room in a flat for £100 a month and that was kind of it. So, I tell um, you, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, I think as you say, it's, it's a hugely sophisticated um, sector now that, you know, is, is interesting to lots of funds and um, developers as well. Mm. Um, but I think I think you, 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 you're right. What's going to happen with that? Because it's a mature market, and because it's a very well understood market, um, what's going to happen? I think is it will splinter a little bit in terms of the affordable mm. and, and the higher demand. And the higher demand really, if, if people think they're going to be spending more time in the rooms, you know, as well as your top of the range Wi-Fi, you're going to want a bit more quality in your in your in your digs. You're going to want a bigger room because spend more time there. So yeah. They'll, There'll be those who will spend the money to get the better quality accommodation. Um, and the affordable market remains, I think, the opportunity in the PBSA market in the UK because there's a, not a massive difference in construction costs between a high-end mm. um, uh, asset and a, and a, and a mid-rent. 
asset. But of course, the fundamentals don't stack up to build the the mid market student yeah. uh, PBSAs at the moment. So, the, anyone who cracks that in terms of modular construction or however they do it has <laughs> got a, a has got a, an untapped uh, market there. I, I suppose I wonder if that comment holds true for the BTR PRS market in Scotland as well, and mm. kind of comes back to maybe some of the comments you made about the lack of traction, the lack of momentum, I think, in terms of the the BTR market in Scotland. I wonder mm. if we'll end up in a similar scenario where we kind of split between affordable BTR and the sort of the higher end PRS model with all the sort of fancy bells and whistles on it. Yep. Because you know, I think we kind of touched on this before, but I, I, I do wonder to what extent high end PRS is hugely sustainable in Scotland and um, I, I do worry that maybe we don't have the same demand as maybe they, they, they will do down south where you've got greater economies of scale, greater kind of um, populations to kind of draw on in terms of people interested in kind of taking that product. But I think certainly during 2020, I think it's probably safe to say that we did see a bit of a an uptick in build to rent type activity so certainly seen a lot more development activity moda and obviously platform as well getting on mm. getting on sites and certainly the wheels seem to have started to turn in terms of uh, funding we know that moda are getting funding through in terms of their schemes both in um, fountain bridge in edinburgh and over in glasgow as well and i think in planning terms platform i think have now gone in for planning on their site in Bonington. So the wheels are turning, but mm. probably not as fast as they turn down south. And I think I don't know if that's frustrating maybe for the for the funders and the, the developers who are in that space, but um certainly it's not as well developed yes as mm. maybe the market is south of the border. Okay. So uh have we have we left anything out that you you guys wanted to cover? I think we've uh, we've had a pretty good tour through the various sectors. Yeah, I think that was, we probably have in a, in a roundabout way. I think yeah, managed to took them all off. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. I think it's uh, it just in this, this first episode, we've, we've had a good foundation of a, a, a real sense of where the market is at up in Scotland that we can build on in the, in the next couple of episodes. But I, I probably should, uh, whilst we're here, on, on whilst uh, Euro 2020 squads are being announced, I, I kind of should ask you for a Don't go there, Jess. Don't for go there. For, for June the 18th. Uh, oh. You know, Eng- England, Scotland at Wembley. What's 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 going to happen? Oh. Um, my my heart says Scotland to sneak a 1-0 win, last-minute penalty. My head says... 4 0 to England, I don't know, get drummed out the Tartan Army for that. But yeah, I think it's tough. It will be tough. Do you know, our, our only hope, I think, is that um, is that England are, are imperious in qualifying, but but less. Le- yeah, le- less the opposite it, of imperious. Yeah, less solid when it comes to the, the actual tournament phase. So, but mind you, they're still, whenever we've faced them in tournaments that I can remember in recent years, I'll never forget Gascoigne's goal in. Yeah, nineteen ninety six was that? Yeah, it um, was, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I think Al's right. I think, um, I think if we're going to win it, it's going to be a, a very, very tight game where we where we sneak a goal. But I, I, I come away from that very happy if we got a draw. I think. 
I think the good news, Jess, is that Yuri Geller's now going to have to right the wrong of 96 and do us a bit of a favour when we get that last-minute penalty. So if you're out there, Yuri, if he's out there listening, hopefully he can do us a turn. Right, well, we will see uh, what happens. And, yeah, so thank you very much, um, both of you, for for joining me. And, um, Johnny, you're back uh, next week, is that right? Back next week with Rory, yes. And we'll uh, talk about uh, the planning system uh, up there and how that has uh, evolved during COVID and, and what, what that means for development. Good stuff. Thanks, Jess. Okay, and then Thanks, Alan, Alan will be speaking to you again in a couple of weeks to, to look to the future. Is that right? Yeah, we're going to have a chat about overseas investors and what they might be looking to do in terms of um, the Scottish investment market over the next couple of years when things kind of unwind. So, yeah, no, looking forward to that. Be and it may conversation. It may well be that the R word comes up in that discussion. Yes, the referendum. Yeah, or the never end. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of inevitable, isn't it? Unfortunately. But, uh, we'll leave that for another day. Uh, thanks once again. Terrific. Uh, you have been listening to the Property Podcast from EG.